0: You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid Missouri's source for in depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted that we get to spend the next hour together in the world of the arts. this week's Speaking of the Arts, we are staying very close to home and chatting with two people who have either shaped or will be shaping our own community radio station. I consider myself very fortunate that almost three years ago I was given the chance to make a weekly radio show about the arts. Community radio, as it exists here in America, does not exist in my home country And the idea that I could, with next to no experience, be invited to make a radio show every week was quite incredible to me. But that is the wonder of community radio in general, and KOPN in particular. What we hear every week is the sound of our community, the sound of the issues that we care about, the sound of events that are happening locally. We hear music from all over the world, hosted by people who have come to live in our community from all over the world. And all we have to do is flip a switch on our radio and listen. So this week's show is all about KOPM. First up, I get the privilege of introducing you to the person who will be shaping KOPM as we head towards our 50th anniversary in 2023. And in the second act of today's show... I'll be chatting to Tim Pilcher, a man of many, many creative talents who has guided the station for the past year. Is everyone sitting comfortably? Okay, here we go. On January the 4th this year, KOPM got a new general manager. His name is Mikel Calzada, and if you're thinking it doesn't sound like he's from around here you would be right. He is in fact from Barcelona, where he has spent the best part of 40 years in the media spotlight, first as a radio personality and entrepreneur, and then as a well-known TV presenter with his own weekly talk show on the primary TV channel of the Catalan Public Broadcasting Corporation. Plus, in his free time, he's been a vocal advocate for Catalan independence And between 2003 and 2016, he travelled all over the world to make over 90 episodes of a TV show called Foreign Affairs, where he met up with Catalan expatriates everywhere from Patagonia to North Korea. And I am still pinching myself at our good fortune that this globetrotting, communicating entrepreneur to quote Wikipedia, has now quietly moved to Columbia, Missouri, to be the new general manager of KOPN. Good morning, Mikael.
1: Good morning, Diana, and thank you for having me in your show.
0: Absolutely. I have so many questions I want to ask you, but I confess to feeling slightly daunted by the fact that interviewing you... A man who has spent his career interviewing people is the equivalent of interviewing a cross between Jimmy Fallon, Rick Steves and Christiane Amanpour. So forgive me, I feel a little nervous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to. No, I I feel a, a little nervous, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, the big question I want to get to eventually is how and why you are now dedicating your time and expertise to being the general manager of KOPN. But let's do this chronologically and start by going way back to your early days and your interest in radio. How did it all start, Miguel?
1: Well, I I guess it uh, all started when I was uh, 13 or 14 years old and um, I was on summertime. I was with my grandmother. And she was all the time hearing the radio, and uh, it was like a natural thing. I started hearing the radio, and one day somehow I discovered that there was another button that says wave, And so the day I click this button and I start hearing voices and musics uh, in other languages. I was thrilled. I was amazed. And I became an amateur radio uh, listener, so to speak.
0: Did you have any equipment? Were you creating any shortwave sound or experimenting with sound at all?
1: i I experiment a lot uh, <laughs> with antennas, aerials, and uh going back and forth to basements of neighbors because they were um in, in the basement, usually they had this big wooden receiver from the 20s with valves. And I, please, can can I get this <laughs> receiver? And and I started listening shortwave uh, with these old equipment And, I mean, it was really mm, amazing in my mind to somehow listen to, I don't know, uh, for sure, Voice of America, but also stations from Brazil or from the Iron Curtain. At that time, they they were doing lots of uh, problems in Spanish because they, they want to reach South America. And uh, so some of the problems you can understand perfectly. Others, uh, it was a bit hard. But that's the way I, I started. So when I hear, for instance, uh, Radio Luxembourg and uh, Radio Caroline, which was a pirate radio at the time, and the uh, musical prompts, it was a completely new world for me and for, for that matter, for any listener at th- that period of time. No?
0: It's funny to think that me in my bedroom in the north of England and you in your bedroom in Spain at the same time, we're both listening to Radio Luxembourg, we're both listening to Radio Caroline. That yes. These were stations that reached out across Europe that weren't weren't bound by countries' borders. So that's kind of it's kind of fun history of radio in Europe. So at this time I guess this is what, the early seventies when this is happening.
1: Yeah, at the at the end of the seventies, uh, the beginning of the of the eighties, uh, I was a teenager, and I wanted to have my my radio program. And I thought, well, maybe if I if I go to a radio station, a local radio station, and ask to have a, a radio program to put some music, they will say no, thank you, you're too young, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> so, I I thought uh, on another approach. And I thought, why don't I do a, a DX program, a program dedicated to the people that uh, listens to the wave, as there were many programs of this at that time in international stations. So I just asked my hometown radio station, it doesn't work. I went to the next village and it works. And so I started at that time doing my my show half an hour every week, speaking, not speaking of the arts, but speaking of the radio.
0: And you were speaking in Catalan, not in Spanish.
1: Yeah, that was one of the few programs at that time in Radio Terrassa, Radio Terrassa, this is a village 20 miles away from Barcelona. This was one of the few, if not the only one program in Catalan at that, at that time. This was at the uh, 1980s. Uh, so the Franco's regime had already banished in the 75, but uh, media at that time had uh, still an Inertia, and they were still speaking Spanish because Catalan uh, was not banned anymore, but the media was still having this inertia. And it was, well, uh, it was better to speak in Spanish. But my prom was entirely in Catalan, yeah.
0: And am I right in thinking that you were chosen as a very young person to be the first voice that was broadcast across the national broadcasting channel in Catalan?
1: Yeah. What currently is the National Catalan Service, uh, radio service, Catalunya Radio, uh, they have four channels. Well, the manager turned out to be the first person that I, (laughs) that I went to when I, try to speak on the radio in this radio terrassa and so when he was hired to be the the, the executive director of Catalonia radio he thought well uh, i want an array of new voices and i think Mikel's going to be fine delivering this first message i was uh, 18 17 years old yeah at that time and when i hear this Recording. It sounds well, not weird, but it's <laughs> it's really a, young, a very young and uh, an experienced voice, and very nervous too. Yep.
0: What an incredible place in history, though, to be that first voice that broadcasts in your own language. So by the the age of 19, you were a regular on television and you had the first ever Spanish talk show. Is that right? With a weekly show called Mickey Moto Club.
1: Oh, yes, you're right.
0: (laughs) A name which you're still you're still recognized today in Catalonia as Mickey Moto. Tell us about that show. And where did the name Mickey Moto come from?
1: Uh, Well, I don't know. I, well, yeah, I know. Uh, It was, it was because I, well, my, my parents didn't want me to have a, a bike at the time. They were very reluctant that I drive a bike. So, um, when I got my first salary at 18 years old, uh, I got my license and I, and I bought a bike, a big one. And I was all the time talking about bikes and radio. And, and there was one guy, uh, the musical director in Catalonia Radio, that says, since you are Mikel, Mike, and you like motorbikes, <laughs> I'm going to call you Mickey Moto. And this was my nickname that has accompanied me for all these years. No? And yes, I'm very known uh, with this nickname in my, in my country.
0: And so at the same time, or I guess shortly thereafter, you aren't only making your name as a Catalan language TV host, but you're also starting and managing a new radio station. What was the impetus for becoming a radio entrepreneur?
1: You know, I, I've always thought that uh, as a country, we've been very unfortunate and, um Banning a language is—I uh, mean, we can talk about this—that uh, that that was at that time, etc. But this is a, a, this is very harsh, uh, meaning that uh, is like denying a person. No? And and for me, this was a priority. So there were some things that I couldn't stand at that time. Well, I can stand now. But to make someone comply to another language. Because, I don't know, because I'm the winner or because I'm the ruler or because I'm the whatever you want to call it, it's something that I cannot send. And there are subtle ways to do this. And one of the ways is to mock this language or to make this language appear like, uh, well, this is a pigeon language or you are talking a pigeon. This is not even a language. So my interest grew and I decided that why don't we broadcast or why don't we create a station for young people to demonstrate that it's not only a literary language, it's not only a language for studies, but also can be obviously a regular language like every, every other. And we were the very first to set up a programming of Top 40 in, in Catalan, and so there there was a lot of people astonished and and somehow, uh, after a decade of setting up this station, all the other top forty stations started somehow changing the language on air and this was a big a big change at that moment so it was uh, th- this was my first motivation to make this language sound as normal as possible, and second one. Try to um, break the monopoly of a special station that was the number one at the time. And we did it. We did it at the end of the 12th or 13th year of our existence.
0: So you have this incredibly interesting combination of being this successful entrepreneur, starting radio stations, working behind the scenes, managing the finances and the staffing and the administration of commercial radio. And then also you have this sharp-witted world-travelling personality in front of the cameras. Where where are you most comfortable?
1: <sighs> I I think I am um I'm more comfortable in the creative uh, pace but uh, there's one thing for sure if you don't have revenues you uh, are not going to I mean if you want to write poems you have to uh, to be another problem solved before <laughs> dedicate yourself to write poems no And uh, that has been one of my main fixations or concerns in my life. So if I wanted to see uh, my so-called dream come true, I have to have the resources first to make it happen.
0: So talking about all your creative life. You've also worked as a TV producer. You produced a series of 70 shows on environmental issues, which I think was called El Capita en Siam. Does that mean Lettuce Head?
1: Yeah, <laughs> this does. is the, oh, the Lettuce Captain.
0: Lettuce Captain. Lettuce, yeah. <laughs> okay. El Capita
1: en Siam, yeah.
0: Plus you made a show about how to stop smoking. But then in 2003, you started your series called Affairs Exterior, or, or Foreign Affairs. And you travelled to over 70 countries over the course of seven seasons of the show to interview Catalan expatriates. And honestly, as a a fellow world traveller, I could spend like 10 shows asking you about these visits. But let me ask you this. How did 13 years of travelling around the world change your view of the world?
1: Wow, um, it, it, it changed a lot. I mean, uh, it changed a lot. I mean, what I'm gonna say, it's gonna be, it seemed basic and <laughs> no sense, but it made me really aware that we are more alike than, than we think. Absolutely alike. I mean, I had the, the privilege to be in a, a I don't know how they call it a yogurt in Mongolia, a sort of tent, this kind, this kind of tents, or also spend a night in a farm in uh, in uh, Tierra del Fuego in Patagonia. Yeah, in Patagonia, or I don't know to be in sub-Saharan Africa in Mali, and this inner feeling uh, when you realize that. Amen. We, we we are all alike. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and that we feel for the same things and we, we are concerned for the same events and, and, and we cry for the same. So I think this was an eye opening um, factor for me to have the privilege to to visit more than 80 countries or 89 or 90. I don't know. So this for me was incredible.
0: The best gift in life is the ability to travel. And I think there would be far less discord in the world if everybody had a passport and went out and and travelled. How did you you find all of the Catalan expatriates that you featured on the
1: shows? Yeah, uh, this was um, not so difficult because I think that we are a, a country of people that travel a lot. And again, I did this program to make our viewers, uh, around six, seven million people, aware that uh, to present yourself as uh, someone from Catalonia, uh, it's a normal thing. <laughs> I mean. Because there's an old generation back in my country that uh, when they travel, sometimes they, well, first of all, they speak Spanish because they think that uh, uh, the Spanish language is uh, well understood everywhere in the world. And and unfortunately, it's not so. And this is normal. (laughs) And the second thing is that, where are you from? Well, I'm from Spanish. But, well, but, uh, but, but, well, come on. Where are you from? Well, I'm Catalan. Okay, that's it. And so to somehow rise self-esteem in our viewers. That was my main objective when I decided to to do this program. But we wanted to do this by explaining the life of other fellow citizens like us. But at the end, this program was a mix. It was also a cooking program. It was also a tourist program. It was uh, more cultural, p- cultural program sometimes. Yeah for sure. So it turned out that this program was uh, half an hour every week. And every week was sort of different. But you were telling me how did I find? our? Yeah,
0: how did you find them? And you went to North Korea and you found a Catalan expatriate living in North Korea. I mean, how many Catalan expatriates can there possibly be in North Korea? And you found them? Or one,
1: <laughs> uh, one, <laughs> just one. I mean, for for uh, people that that has a, a passport that uh, says that. Uh, yeah, but there's no
0: there's no Catalan embassy that you can call up in in Pyongyang and say, "Hi, I'm going to come and do some filming. Can you put me in touch with the one <laughs> Catalan person you look after?" I mean, they, that doesn't exist. This was a,
1: this this was a <laughs> this was an extreme case because it was very difficult to find <laughs> someone. Uh, we wanted to go to South Korea, and it. Turned Turns out that someone says, "But uh, didn't you know that there is someone in North Korea?" <laughs> Are you saying North Korea? Yeah, yeah, and he's very well connected, and and, and it was a fascinating for us, but uh, it's unfortunately for uh, the people of North Korea no, actually, because this is a very difficult country for citizens. I mean, uh, it, uh, for us was a, a privilege, and we were very honored to be welcomed there. We know we can only record... Um,
0: what they tell you.
1: What they want us, yeah, what they tell us. And we don't want them be be uh, somehow disappointed with us. So today, where do we go? Oh, today we're going to go there. OK, great. <laughs> and now tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow there. OK, that that was fine. But Just the greatest yeah, hits. Yeah, uh, just the greatest <laughs> hits. But the reality is much more uh, somber and dire in, in North Korea, unfortunately. Is hmm.
0: there anywhere that you still want to go that you haven't been yet?
1: Actually, I've been... Mean, <laughs> pretty much in every place i i wanted to go so let me <laughs> think uh well yeah there's a place that i would like to go and i uh, one day uh, i'll i'll go and this is uh well i am sure you know this place is in front of argentina and uh is called falcon islands or the malvinas and um for me is a fascinating well if you've seen TV footage or or films about this. It's, uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, there's a lot of sheep. Uh, yeah, lots of sheep. And <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting uh, that there's a community there for a lot of time. Well, this is one place. Yeah, this is one place. And the other place is the Pitcairn Island. Oh my do you know the descendants of the bounty and these sort of things? The
0: mutineers of the bounty. Yes, their descendants live on on the tiny speck in the middle of the South Pacific or yep. Pitcairn Island.
1: <laughs> yeah. Other than these, I've seen, uh, I think I'm fortunate enough to, to travel to all corners of the world.
0: Well, it's good to still have some things on your to-do list. You haven't checked them all off yet. How many languages do you speak, Michele?
1: Uh, Well, if you consider that I'm speaking English, then I (laughs) speak lots of languages. But,
0: I mean, is English your sixth language or your fifth language or your seventh language? Uh, I
1: would say my fifth language. I can communicate in French, in Italian, uh, and Spanish. In Spanish, uh, with lots of um, accents. Yeah, accents.
0: That's amazing. To most of us that are native English or American language speakers, the idea of being able to speak four or five other languages to any degree of fluency is, is mind-blowing. So let's get to the big question, Mikel. How does a TV personality and successful media entrepreneur from Barcelona decide that he wants to be the general manager of a community radio station in Columbia, Missouri? Because you've got to admit, it is a slightly unusual development.
1: Diana, this is a fascinating question. So uh, (laughs) look, No, I think that because of my research in public radio and specifically in community radio, I just thought that I could uh, learn more if, if I was able to manage a community radio station. This is one point, but it turns out that it's quite difficult to find this kind of position in in specifically in public radio and more specifically in community radio but uh kopn was at the time fortunately for me searching general manager and so my my dreams match with what kopn was was trying to look for but besides this i think that it is more um it was not a regular search for someone to manage a community radio station. It was more than this because KOPN is more than community radio. And uh, it was more than this because KOPN, as listeners may know, it's going to celebrate its 50th anniversary in two years and is planning also to move to another location, another site, and is now setting up a capital campaign. So I think that all these factors add to my willing to become a general manager of a community station. I don't know if that answers your question, Diana. Hmm?
0: Yeah, I think so to some degree. I'm wondering obviously you were you were researching positions that were available and there are several radio station manager positions available at any one time. And I wondered if there was anything that you saw. I know you did a huge amount of research about the station. Whether you saw anything in KOPN specifically that you thought this this is really what my heart is about. This is something that I want to get back to from your early days in radio.
1: Well, I think that the specific location of KOPN, uh, I mean, Colombia, it's a, a really a really nice city in terms that it's not a big city, but it's not a, a, a small town. And on top of this, you have a fantastic University that is part of the community of colombia no? and and this was also another factor to decide to come to to Colombia no? but I think that um it's a fascinating story to be able to celebrate fifty years on air just relying on listenership. Mm. I think that this is something that uh, you take for granted. And um, in other places, they will be like, what are you telling me? <laughs> and all these people are volunteers and they appear every single week when they have to and they prepare their programs and they do all the research and they do the job and they stay here for whatever uh, needs KOPN must have that's remarkable and 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 also fascinating and that was at the end of the day that what decided me to apply for this position
0: right so does it feel a little bit like uh, coming here to Columbia and working with KOPN and community radio is a, is a bit like going back to your early passion for radio in that variety of voices and, and that grassroots level of interest and support? It's like almost you've done a full circle.
1: Yeah, in, in a sense, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Because the very first time I Enter into the station. It reminded absolutely <laughs> the, uh, the first time I went to to my first station Radio Terraza, in 1970. Uh, Whatever, it was the, the same. I mean, it was the same feeling. I I I arrive uh, in STL airport and I was uh, in a rush. I wanted to to be at Colombia at no time, and so. I, I experienced the, it's, it's interesting because what you've already said, it's, it's what I felt at that time.
0: Well, there is a word in your culture that describes an ancestral Catalan wisdom or set of customs. It's the idea of living one's life, relying on refined good sense, level-headedness, integrity, and self-realization. It's the philosophy of Seng. Am I saying that correctly? <sighs>
1: Yeah, you're saying correctly. Well, actually, you have elaborated a lot, but yeah, it's a saying. Yeah, the saying. It means, um, I don't know how to translate this to be thoughtful, to be, uh, how do you translate a saying? What would you say?
0: Well, I think just being level-headed, level-headed and yeah. working with integrity and, and self-awareness. Yeah. And I, it seems like a wonderful basis for the job that you are here to do. So, Mikel, thank you so much for becoming part of our community. And I hope you will be as happy here as I have become. So, moltes gracias.
1: Oh, the rest. I'm very happy. Thank you, Diana, for having me. And I hope that uh, we, all together, we would be able to to celebrate this uh, incredible 50th anniversary that it's, uh, uh, we are almost there. Thank you, Diana.
0: Thank you, Mikael. I am always fascinated and envious of people who are really, really good at multiple things, like the Kansas City Chiefs football player Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who not only exceeds in the world of sports but is also a qualified, a fully qualified medical doctor. And so it is with my next guest, the multiple talents part, not the football playing, who is an incredibly talented musician of a panoply of instruments, has composed film scores, produces podcasts, has an abiding passion and expertise in the field of sound recording, and over the past 12 months, truly saved KOPN as the pandemic raged. He is the former KOPN general manager and now the station's operations director, Tim Pilcher. Good morning, Tim.
2: Good morning, Diana. Thanks for having me.
0: I am assuming you are not an ace at football, but there is lots about you. I don't know, so feel free to set the record straight on that one.
2: No, no. I I played sports as a child, mostly basketball and baseball, but that is not my field of expertise.
0: So in my chat with the new general manager, Mikel Calzada, we ended with what he saw as KOPN's special qualities as an outsider looking in. So let's start our chat with your take as an insider and the person who has been in charge of the station for the past year. Tell me what makes KOPN special to you?
2: Well, KOPN and community radio in general is a rarity in our media landscape across the country. I've been involved with KOPN since actively since the fall of 2018, so really my time here has not uh, been that long compared to many of the people who have been involved over KOPN over the years. But one of the things that is instantly uh, recognizable about KOPN is its uniqueness and where it fits in with our local media landscape as well as the access That we have. We are an open access station, community station, which means we are primarily operated by volunteers. And at any given time, we have between 70 and 80 active volunteers who are on the air producing local unique programs that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, In this day and age, this is harder and harder to find on the FM spectrum. Now, granted, we have the internet, we have podcasts, we have YouTube, and we have all sorts of Brand new forms of media that people can produce and get their ideas out into the world. But as far as reach, there's nothing quite like classic FM radio. You know, it can reach into everybody's vehicle. Um, almost every home has at least one radio. I know at my home, I've got about 10 different radios if you count all the <laughs> alarm clock radios and all of the devices. It's free, it's easily accessible, and most importantly, it is made without the influence of corporate or other interests, so we are not dependent upon anybody else but our listeners and our community for, for what happens here.
0: Do you have a sense of how many community radio stations there are in America that are similar to KOPM?
2: Sure. Well, a lot, a lot of people bill themselves as community radio stations, but they may be on any part of the spectrum, from, from public to community. I think there are around two to 300 and now some of these are very small, low-power stations that may not reach farther than 10 miles. For example, we have a low-power station over in Fayette, which is a community station, but it uh, it doesn't quite have the reach that KOPN has.
0: We stand at an interesting time in media history as things have... Of- changed so dramatically and quickly over the past 20 mm-hmm. years and there are a lot of people who are quick to toll the bell for the decline of radio as a media force i think especially maybe within the younger generations but you are a millennial and so what is your take on the future of radio generally and community radio specifically across those younger generations
2: well i think i've been hearing people toll the the, the death knell for radio <laughs> for a long time now, and it still hasn't happened. And so um, I personally believe in the future of radio. Now, granted, it will be combined with a growing digital presence, podcasting, streaming. I think that part is inevitable. But as long as the FCC continues to allocate a sliver of spectrum for broadcasting, and specifically in our case, non-commercial broadcasting, and as long as there are radios in cars and in people's homes I don't I don't really see it going anywhere. Radio, FM radio continues to be near the very top of listening consumption among all sorts of devices. You know, we have these new oh, I don't I don't even know what they're called, the Amazon devices or the Google Home devices, the smart speakers. That's what they are. We have these proliferating in people's homes, but that sort of thing is in reality a very small percentage of listening. It is continuing to grow, but FM radio, by and large, dominates the share of ear, as they call it. So I don't think it's going anywhere. And I think, um, in particular, community radio brings a new excitement to it that you don't find in commercial or most public radio stations. Because what we offer at community radio is engagement and direct involvement in the creation of it. And, and that, that is a rarity and that is an advantage that Kopian and community radio as a whole has in this field.
0: If someone came along and said, here's a million dollars to set up a community radio station for, for the future, for future generations, what would it look like? Starting from scratch, perfect world, lots of money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, a million dollars could buy you a lot. You might be able to make two community radio stations. <laughs> And, and the, the truth is there are things that money can't buy. The spectrum for radio stations in the U.S. is very limited. Um, now, an exciting prospect that is coming down the pipes in the following year is that the FCC will be opening up a new auction for non-commercial licenses for new FM stations where that spectrum is available. Now, in most cities of Columbia's size and bigger, the spectrum is so crowded that there isn't room for any more radio stations in the non-commercial band, simply because of it's already taken. Physically, we can only fit so much in that part of the, the spectrum. But in rural areas or in areas where stations have discontinued service, there are going to be opportunities for new community stations. And... Um, that's something that I'm following closely and, and would like to be involved with in some regard. not that I'm going to go off and start my own station, but I think in community radio, you know we all work together to to help everybody out. And we at KOPN, we've been doing this for almost 50 years now. We as a station have many resources to share with new stations that are getting started. So as far as what I would put in a brand new station, all of the standard things your broadcast studio, I would get the most reliable new equipment that we could afford, a few production studios, a podcast studio, and of course you need your transmitter and your tower and all of your, your backup systems to make sure you're you're on the air at all times. So,
0: so it wouldn't look hugely different than, than how it is today. It, no,
2: it wouldn't look hugely different. The, the fascinating thing to me about community radio is the amount of impact that you can have for such a small cost. Mm. You know, at KOPN, historically, uh, we've been a small team of paid staff members and a large core of volunteers, and our budgets are not uh, very large, (laughs) frankly, (laughs) to put it lightly. But nevertheless, our signal reaches in a 50 or 60-mile radius around Columbia. So the folks down in Jefferson City or out in Sedalia or over in Moberly or Fulton, they hear what we're putting out on the air and you know we don't pay to see the amount of listeners that we have we don't subscribe to nielsen ratings but our signal can reach potential population of about 250,000 people so it's really a big bang for your buck when you're creating community style radio largely with volunteers for the amount that it costs to pay for the energy bill for the transmitter and to keep the lights on at the station and you know, the technology, the impact that you can have in a community is, is huge. And I think we've seen over the years, how KOPN has helped play a role in the the transformation and the shaping of art and culture and local political issues within Columbia, but also within mid-Missouri as a whole. KOPN is an institution that lives beyond you or me or the people that are involved in it. You know, Mm -hmm. there was a small group of people, the New Wavers, the the folks that formed the New Wave Corporation in 1972, I believe, were their Articles of Incorporation, who had this idea, of course, to create a community radio station in the Pacifica model, in the model set forth by people like Jeremy Landsman and Lorenzo Milam, who were the, quote-unquote, Johnny Appleseeds of community radio, who helped start stations like KOPN across the country, stations that were operating outside of corporate and political interests and we're really interested in bringing in things that you don't hear elsewhere on the radio interesting political views culture etc you know it's a really unique thing that we have and the impact of it within our media landscape is more important now than ever Radio stations, commercial radio stations in particular, are being bought up and consolidated and automated. And these vestiges of radio, local radio, that is a true community service, they're few and far between. So, you know, it's something that is easy to take for granted. You can turn on your radio at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and hear KOPN. But it wouldn't be here without... The hard work of many people over 50 years and, of course, all of the wonderful donors who have stepped up and been willing to support it financially throughout that time.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about your own creative work. You have stepped back from the position of general manager to have more time to put into your own creative projects and and one of them being your new son, who is now six months old, taking care of him. Eric Danielson wrote an article about you a few years ago in the Tribune where he referenced your abundance of curiosity and your choice of taking responsibility to satisfy those interests, by which he meant that you prefer the route of self-teaching over taking formal instruction. And that is true of your musical practice, how you learn languages and your knowledge of sound design which I would, I would love to take a masterclass with you one day about that when you have time. But tell me what sparked your fascination with sound.
2: Well, that's a hard question. I mean, sound <laughs> is, is one of our senses. It's, listening is a divine pleasure. I mean, <laughs> it's like asking, how do I feel about taste? You know, I, of course, for me, sound just happens to be what I'm interested in. And pursuing it in all of these different facets, whether it's making music or making radio or podcasting or just the pure recording of sound, I don't know if I can pinpoint exactly what it is that drew me to it. I think what I can say is, just for a long time since I can remember, I've been interested in listening. And I think partially that's why my interest in foreign language studying spanish and french that's partially why i'm interested in that but uh, simply the pure pleasure of listening i I believe has led me to my interest in sound and in music Uh, with regard to music making for me i primarily do it as uh, an intellectual practice and i don't mean to get all pretentious about it but to (laughs) me making music is i do it to stimulate myself and to challenge myself um there are many different genres of music I could choose to play folk music, blues music, but I, I choose certain things um, because they're interesting to me and because I think on some level they're they're intellectually challenging and stimulating. Um, much of my music practice could also be described as contemplative uh, in the form of of deep listening or deep listening, which leads to deep creation of what I call slow music, which is um, sort of a loose term that i that I use in my own head to describe m- music that I don't know how to put it I guess it's just music that encourages contemplation and you know music that you can walk to, music that you can have on the background, music that could sometimes be described as ambient sacred music, transcendental music. I don't purport to uh, achieve uh, transcendental moments with all of my music, but in my own personal practice of creating it, that is something that I that I strive for.
0: Well, the I mean, we don't all listen exactly the same. I mean, you obviously have a passion and an ability and an awareness of the art of listening. And the world of sound as I have found, is a a rabbit hole of wonder that it's very easy to fall into and get super nerdy, super fast. But to get to the art of sound, you have to pass through a lot of science of sound. And you have to really develop really, really good ears. I listen to some podcasts about sound and they say, okay, do an A-B test on this. Which one is different? And I'm like, they're the same. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't hear it. You have to have really good ears. And obviously, that's something that you have developed over your time being a sound designer. Do you have a a philosophy of sound design about how much you get involved in the final product?
2: Yeah, I think to some extent, and of course, it all depends on, on the context in which I'm working. So for example, in my work doing location sound, so recording the sound for film or video shoots. In many cases, uh, working with Tiny Attic Productions, a lot of our work was documentary work, some of it in the tradition of cinema verite, where the philosophy behind that being you don't interfere so much with what is going on, but you're simply there to objectively capture what is happening. Now, of course, that's a lofty ideal trying to objectively capture something but when you have a camera or a microphone in somebody's face there's always going to be a little bit of bias or a little bit of awareness that of course this is a recorded piece that is going to air or be broadcast in some fashion or another so i don't i don't think we can achieve direct objectivity in that sense but in in those sorts of situations recording interviews recording narratives personal interviews of that nature um one philosophy i would have is to not influence what that person is saying too much and if it is going to be edited to edit it in such a way that it is true to the original intent of the speaker so i think that that is one philosophy that i have regarding that situation and that comes into play in, in a lot of my podcast work and radio work but you know it's hard to say if I have one, overarching philosophy, because I I work in in different fields. Um, In some cases, in some collaborations, there is an interesting facet if the person documenting is influencing what is happening. And I think maybe in some instances that's happened with my work with Greenhouse Theatre Project. But we can get into that later. (laughs)
0: Well, I, as well as all your sound design for mm-hmm. film and podcast production, you also play acoustic steel string guitar in a duo together with cellist Monica Lord. So let's yeah. have a wee musical interlude and listen to a little of your music. This is a track called The North Shore and it's from an album you released back in 2017 called Simply Tim Pilcher and Monica Lord. That was The North Shore by Tim Pilcher and Monica Lord. Before we went to the music, you mentioned Greenhouse Theatre Project and the work that you did with them on their project called Dark Creation, The Mary Shelley Project about the mother of Frankenstein. Tell us a little bit about the score you wrote for that and what the brief was from Elizabeth Brown Palmieri.
2: Sure, yeah. Elizabeth has been a wonderful collaborator over the years. I I believe our first project together was working on Lost Letters, an art installation for True False in 2016. As far as dark creation, I had worked with Elizabeth on a few projects and she would always give me a lot of creative liberty to influence and shape the plays as far as the sound was concerned. And she came to me wanting some original music for dark creation. And, you know, one thing that I love... About collaborating with artists in other mediums is that being here in the sound realm, it gives me an opportunity to uh, explore areas and parts of my practice that I may not otherwise have explored. So, um, when Elizabeth came to me with the idea of doing the soundtrack for Dark Creation, I kind of took the idea and ran with it. I went home over probably a few weeks. I recorded some demos of about 10 or 12 songs. Came and shared them with her and the cast for feedback and went home, worked on them again, and ended up doing a 10 song soundtrack for the theater, for the play.
0: Well, let's listen to a little snippet of a piece of music you wrote for that project called Dark Creation. Dark Creation by Tim Pilcher from Greenhouse Theatre Projects production in 2017 called Dark Creation, The Mary Shelley Project. So, now that you have more time back in your life for being a father <laughs> and your creative projects, what are some of the burning projects that you've kind of had on the back burner while you wrangled KOPN through a pandemic? What's the first thing you want to do?
2: Sure. Well, well, the most important creative project, as you mentioned, is my son, Rye. <laughs> he <laughs> occupies most of the time and is number one priority. Um, as far as other creative projects that I have going on, I produce, uh, in collaboration with my wife, Hannah, the a podcast for the Center for Agroforestry, which is simply called The Agroforestry Podcast. We decided to stake our claim <laughs> as being the first and only agroforestry podcast to date. So, We have produced one season of that. We did that, I think, over 2018 and 2019, took a short break, and we are currently picking up on producing the next season of 10 episodes. So that's an exciting project. Hannah is the host, and uh, we cover all different aspects of agroforestry. A lot of the material in the podcast has been recorded out in the field by myself, different talks from farmers policymakers, educators, scientists um, in the field of agroforestry, which for those who are unaware is the intentional integration of trees and shrubs with crops and or livestock. So we're talking about perennial crops. We're talking about things like alley cropping, forest farming, silvopasture, which is the grazing of animals, for example, in an orchard or in, in other settings integrated with trees and shrubs, growing things like pawpaws, chestnuts, aronia berries, service berries, perennial crops. So as opposed to what we typically see as, you know, vegetable farming, which is annuals or things like corn and soy. Hmm.
0: One of the other projects that I was hoping to ask you about, but I think we won't have time to do, but maybe I could have you back on the show together with Chelsea Myers, is to talk about the documentary you made, I think came out last year, called Living Soil. But we'll do that another time. But it is a fantastic documentary. I loved all of the music that you had going through it, too. Tim, I think that all of us who love KOPN owe you a huge debt of gratitude for the endless hours and mental anguish this past year has exacted from you. Because I'm really not sure whether we would still be here were it not for the incredible juggling and dedication and basically abandonment of your own life to get us through 2020. So thank you so much for all you have done to keep KOPM broadcasting, to keep all the programmers and the volunteers safe and for taking time to chat with me today, because I know how ridiculously busy you still are. (laughs) Thanks, Tim.
2: Well, thank you so much, Diana. I appreciate it.
0: And that is it for another week. Like any 50-year-old organisation, KOPN's history is full of good times and tough times. But as we stand on the cusp of 2021, I have to say... These feel like pretty exciting KOPN times. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also find us on Spotify or connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. again to my guests today, Mikel Calzada and Tim Pilcher. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song, Wrestler's Heart, at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then... Stay arty mid Missouri.